Good morning. You can open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 22. Genesis 22 will serve as the introduction to the message, not as the main passage. And while you're turning there, let me just say how grateful we are to be here. The Lord has brought us to this point as we seek His will, as you seek His will. And I trust and I understand that there's, there's an element of um, uh, questioning, do we really want this guy who looks like that and sounds like that to, to be our pastor? So I would just encourage you, as Pastor Tom said, to hear the teaching of the Word of God. Genesis chapter 2, follow along as I read, excuse me, 22, follow along as I read verses 1 through 14. Now it came about after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, here I am. And he said, take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took his two young men with him and Isaac, his son. And he split wood for the burnt offering and rose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place from a distance. Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey, and I and the lad will go over there, and we will worship and return to you. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on, his, on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife, and the two of them walked on together. Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father, and he said, Here I am, my son. And he said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. Then they came to the place of which God had told him, and Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood, and bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. And he said, Do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him. For, I, for now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Then Abraham raised his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him for a burnt offering in the place of his son. Abraham called that name of that place, the Lord will provide, as it is to this day. In the mount of the Lord, it will be provided. 
What would so possess a man that he would be willing to kill his only son? A command which would seem to contradict everything the Lord had promised. Try to imagine the conflicting emotions Abraham was going through when he heard God's commandment. When Abraham was 75 years old and Sarai was 65, God promised Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 that he would make him a great nation. A man with no children being told, I will make you a great nation. Now they were up there in age, obviously, but there's no indication in the biblical text that they thought this was impossible. We understand that people lived longer in those days and perhaps in those days, 75 was, and 65 were not yet too old. But when nothing happened after 10 years, it seems as though they thought, well, it seems like God isn't going to do this naturally, so let's help him out. Let's have Sarah involved in this situation and get a son through her. But the Lord reject, rejected Ishmael and told and reaffirmed to Abraham and Sarai, No, I will give you a son through Sarai. Five years go by. Ten years. And another year. And another year. Abraham is 95. Sarai is 85. The years continue to go by. And finally, when Abraham is 99 years old, the Lord says to him, At this time, Next year, you will have a son. And as impossible as it seems, and by that point it was impossible, they trusted the Lord. One year later, they have little baby Isaac, and he begins to grow up in their side. And the Lord promises, it is through Isaac, this child of promise, that I will make you a great nation. And the nations of the earth will be blessed. It's after all that, that about ten years later or so, the Lord comes to Abraham and says, Abraham, I want you to take your son, your only son, the son whom you love, Isaac, and I want you to sacrifice him for me. Again, I ask, what possesses a man to be willing to kill his son and apparently to undo all of the promises that God has made over the years? Well, Hebrews 11 actually gives us the answer to that question. It tells us that Abraham believed that if he obeyed God and killed his son, God would raise Isaac from the dead. Abraham was able to go through the most unimaginable situation, days of thinking about and planning and preparing for killing your own child because he believed that God's promises were more powerful than death. Mark this man centered hope dies with death. 
But God-centered hope lives through death and every lesser form of suffering. Now, God may not call you to slay your own son, but he may call you to put your job on the line. He may not call you to hold the knife over your child, but he may call you to decide between denying Christ and being imprisoned. Or denying Christ and losing your property. Denying Christ or losing your business. Or even denying Christ or losing your head. Christians all around the world today are facing those very decisions. And we should not expect that we can escape those kinds of persecutions But just like Job, every trial we face is also a test of faith. A test to see whether we will truly trust and worship God regardless of what difficulties he allows into our lives. God calls his people to trust him despite all the trials and all the persecutions and all the difficulties we might face. Do you have That kind of convinced hope that Abraham had that enables you to endure any kind of trial? Do you want to have that kind of hope? Well, that's what Hebrews 6 is given to us for. So if you would, keep your finger here in Genesis 22. We'll come back to it and turn to Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6, for the context, I'm going to read verses 7, excuse me, uh, verses 9 through 20, and then our primary text for the message will be verses 13 through 20. Hebrews chapter 6, but beloved, the author of Hebrews writes, we are convinced of better things concerning you and things that accompany salvation, though we are speaking in this way. For God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the labor of love which you have shown toward his name in having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end. So that you will not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises." For when God made the promises to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply you. And so having, been, having patiently waited, he obtained the promise. For men swear by one greater than themselves, and with them an oath is given as confirmation is an end of every dispute. In the same way, God, desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose, interposed or guaranteed with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. 
This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Before we dive into this text, let me fill you in on the context of this passage. Hebrews, if you've studied it, you know it's not a typical epistle. It's not a typical letter written to a church. It's really a sermon. It's a sermon which, like most sermons, has really one big point. And he makes that point over and over and over throughout the letter, supporting it with various subpoints and practical applications. And this sermon, this letter of Hebrews, was written to the people who are referred to as Hebrews needing strong encouragement to persevere under extreme trial and persecution. Despite many of the warnings in the book, the preacher affirms that he is convinced that these, these people who are receiving this letter are believers. After a famous and difficult passage earlier in chapter 6, He writes in verse 9, But beloved, I read this before, we are convinced of better things concerning you and things that accompany salvation, though we are speaking in this way. In other words, even though I've just described those who once claimed to believe and then fell away, we do not think that is true of you. We are convinced that you are saved, he says. In fact, he reminds them in verse 10, For God is not unjust to us to forget your work and the labor which you have shown toward his name in having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. Later in the sermon in chapter 10, he says, But remember the former days when after being enlightened you endured a great conflict of suffering, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. These people were not of the soil which, when the thorns and thistles grew up, choked out the seed of the gospel. No, they endured suffering for the sake of Christ. So what happened? What happened that even after enduring all that suffering, now they still need encouragement to endure? Well, it's because persistent trials have a way of clouding our vision of God and His promises. It's one thing to enjoy a season of trial with joy, gladly accepting the difficult providences that God allows being a good testimony to believers and unbelievers, maybe a, a scary sickness that goes away, maybe a month or two of difficult circumstances, losing your job, having difficult financial situation, maybe even some kind of persecution for a, a period of time, and you endure gladly and honor the Lord as you do that. But it's another thing to maintain joy and steadfastness when suffering persists for months and years And decades with no end in sight. Suffering, and especially long-term suffering, has a way of causing nearsightedness. 
When once you could see your eternal reward waiting for you on the other side of glory, now you can only see the pain directly in front of your eyes. Suffering also has a a deafening effect. When, When once you could hear the beautiful harmonies and intonations of biblical truth, now everything just sounds dull and monotone. This is what happened to these Hebrew believers. With their hearing dulled and their sight becoming short-sighted, they began to struggle with this temptation to return to Judaism. And after, after all, if they returned to Judaism, the suffering would stop, the persecution would stop. Trials, some trials, carry with them that temptation to return to your life before Christ. And if the Hebrews or we, are going to persevere through trials with joy and in steadfastness, we need hope. We need to know that it is worth it to endure. We need to know that when we get to the end of the line, there's something other than a hole in the ground waiting for us. And that's the the preacher's purpose in this Letter to give the Hebrews and by extension all believers the exhortation to persevere. Now, notice what he says in verses 11 and 12. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you will not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Another way to translate that would be, we desire that each of you show the same commitment to the conviction of hope until the end. There was a time when these believers were committed to that conviction of hope. And that enabled them to endure all kinds of suffering with joy. But over time that conviction weakened and so their commitment to it waned. So the preacher exhorts them here and in a number of places in the sermon to return to that same level of commitment to the conviction of hope. And of course, to do that, he doesn't just exhort them. He gives them reasons. Reasons why they should hold fast to the hope of God and His promises. And Hebrews chapter 6, verses 13 to 20, gives us five reasons we can anchor our souls to God and His promises, to persevere through any trial. Five reasons. Consider the first one. God swore by Himself so you can anchor your soul on Him and His promises. Look at verse 13. For when God made the promise to Abraham, since He could swear by no one greater He swore by himself. The preacher then goes on to do what most preachers do. He bases his argument on a text, but he only quotes a portion of that text. And since we each have a copy of the the larger context, let's go ahead and go back to Genesis 22 and see more of what God had swore to Abraham. Look at what God says to Abraham in Genesis chapter 22, verses 16 to 18 after Abraham passed this test of faith. Genesis 2, 22, 16 to 18. 
And God said, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, indeed, I will greatly bless you. And I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of heaven, of the heavens, and as the sand which is on the seashore. And your seed shall possess the gate of your enemies. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. God swore by himself. What does that mean? Well, back in Hebrews chapter 6, we're reminded that in verse 16, men swear by one greater than themselves. Which is to say that if you want to try to convince someone that you're committed to the promise you're going to make to them, you appeal to someone or something outside and preferably greater than yourself. When Isaac had grown up and it was time for him to marry Abraham forced his servant to swear that he would not get a wife from among the Canaanites, but that he would get one from his relatives. And he said, I want you to swear by the Lord. In fact, in Deuteronomy chapter 6, many, many years later, God even commands the Israelites, swear by me and no one else. Swearing was taken so seriously that people would literally stake their lives on it. In Judges chapter 15, Samson uh, agreed to give himself over to his brethren, those of Judah, so that they could tie him up and hand him over to the Philistines. And he did it on the sworn promise that they would not kill him in the process. Adonijah was the son of David who... Uh, when David was nearly dead, tried to preemptively make himself king before before David could appoint Solomon. But when he realized that this wasn't going to work out the way he was hoping, he submitted himself to Solomon and gave himself over to Solomon under the sworn promise that Solomon would not kill him. Now today, swearing in this way is all but meaningless. People will still swear on the Bible or on their mother's grave or on my, on, on my honor, cross my heart, hope to die, stick a needle in my eye. Swearing is a way of binding yourself to something outside yourself or greater than yourself as a means of keeping you accountable to your promise. And if that promise is broken, it reveals your lack of loyalty to that person or thing. It shows that you don't really care about God or the Bible. You don't really love your mother. Or you don't really care about getting a needle stuck in your eye. So when God swears by Himself, what He means is to break this promise is to deny Himself. To break this promise would be to unravel His faithfulness. To break this promise would be to fail in his trustworthiness and to consider his reputation as worthless. If God broke his sworn promise, it would be grounds to distrust him in anything that he said because he could not even keep himself accountable. 
Now, keep, keep in mind that God did not need to swear, right? If he made a promise, it is sure. But God made promises and then he swore to keep them. Which means that God wanted us to know that his promises are as sure as himself. If God's promises to Abraham were to fail, God would no longer be God. He would be more like sinful man than faithful God. But because he is faithful and because he is true, we can anchor our souls on him and his promises. Now, inseparably connected to God's sworn promise is his oath. So God swore by himself. And secondly, God made an oath. So anchor your soul on him and his promises. Look back at Hebrews chapter 6, verse 14. Quoting from Genesis 22, the author says, saying, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply you. What we read here in verse 14, quoting Genesis 22, 17, is not God's promise to Abraham. It is God's oath to, to fulfill his promises. You see, God made multiple promises to Abraham, stretching from Genesis chapter 12 through chapter 22. And here, God is confirming his promises with an oath. We know this because in verse 16 and 17, it explains what God is doing here. Look at that, verse 16. For men swear by one greater than themselves, and with them an oath given as confirmation is an end to every dispute. So that's what we do. Verse 17, in the same way God, desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose, interposed or guaranteed with an oath. In other words, God is not making a promise here. God is guaranteeing his promise. And not only that, but the very language God uses in his oath is oath language, not promise language. For example, in Genesis chapter 12, when God first speaks to Abraham, the Lord says, I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great. In Genesis 13, the Lord says, For all the land which you see, I give it to you and to your descendants forever, and I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth. And in Genesis 17, the Lord says, I will establish my covenant between me and you, and I will multiply you exceedingly. Those and many other passages, the Lord is making specific and clear promises that he will fulfill to Abraham. But when we get to Genesis chapter 22, the NAS here in Hebrews 6 accurately reflects the force of the grammar. He says, I will surely bless you. I will surely multiply you. The significance of that statement is not one of promise, but one of emphatic commitment. In other words, God isn't simply saying, I will bless you and I will multiply you. That's, that's a promise. God is saying, I am committed to blessing you. And I am committed to multiplying you. So what the he, uh, preacher of Hebrews is drawing out for us is not simply that God made promises to Abraham as true as that is. But God is zealously committed to fulfilling his promises to Abraham. In other words, God 
uh, what, uh, excuse me, at this point, you, you might be thinking, well, that's great. God made promises to Abraham. He even swore on himself to keep those promises. And even went on top of that and made an oath. Great for Abraham. That seems like it helped him live a life of faith. How in the world is it supposed to help me, especially help me in difficult days? Well, that's a great question. And our author here in Hebrews 6 answers that question. The reason God swore and made an oath to Abraham is not for Abraham's sake, but for our sake. He did it for you. Look again at verse 17. In the same way, God, desiring even more to show to the heirs, not to Abraham, to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeableness of his purpose, guaranteed with an oath. The text could not be clear. God made his oath, not for the recipient of the promises, Abraham, but for the heirs of the promises, us. In other words, the Lord guaranteed his promises for your sake and for your benefit. Do you mean to say that we are heirs of Abraham's promises? Yes, Yes, I do. Consider Galatians chapter 3, verse 29. And if you belong to Christ, you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to promise. Or Romans chapter 4, verse 16. For this reason, righteousness is by faith, in order that it may be in accordance with grace, so that the promise will be guaranteed to all the descendants not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, a father of many nations, I have made you. You see, there are two kinds of descendants of Abraham, those who share the same DNA and those who share the same faith. You can be a physical descendant of the nation of Israel by birth, or you can be a spiritual descendant of the people of God by faith. And if you are in Christ, if you have put your faith in Christ and received salvation by grace, you are a spiritual descendant of Abraham and an heir to the spiritual promises that God made to Abraham. And so, if that is true of you, God's sworn oath to Abraham was made for you. Look yet again at verses 17 all the way through 19. In the same way, God, desiring even more to show the heirs of the promise, the unchangeableness of his purpose, guaranteed with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have is an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast and one which enters within the veil. So we could ask the question, in what way was God's oath and his swearing by himself for our benefit? And the answer is so that we who have taken refuge in God would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. 
In Hebrews, excuse me, Ephesians chapter 4, Paul says that those who are not anchored in the truth can be tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. But bad doctrine is not the only thing that can toss you around and capsize your life. Suffering has a way of doing that as well. And when the rain and wind keep coming and the waves roll us around, we can lose sight of the horizon. And what we need in those times is an anchor. An anchor that, despite the intensity or the longevity of the trial, keeps our eyes fixed on the horizon of God's promises. And what is that anchor? It's a strong and steadfast conviction that God will fulfill his promises to Abraham, of which we are heirs. Now, if you're keeping track, we still have three points to go. But before we can move on, we have to explore at least a little bit what are those promises that we are beneficiaries of? What is it that we're actually anchoring our hope to? Well, there are at least 14 distinct provisions of the Abrahamic covenant, 14 distinct promises that God made to Abraham. We read it earlier, some of them. But for the sake of time, let's just consider one. We read it earlier in Genesis twenty-two eighteen: In your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. What does that mean? What kind of blessing does that just mean? Well, Things will work out better for us because of God's promises to Israel. No, it's actually more specific than that. Paul picks up on that promise in Galatians chapter 3, verse 8, and he says, The Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, All the nations of the earth will be blessed in you. So then those who are of faith, he goes on, are blessed with Abraham, the believer. Now this is, this is a remarkable text because Paul here, inspired by the Holy Spirit, tells us that the specific blessing, the specific promise for the nations that God meant to promise to Abraham was justification. It was the gospel. The good news that the Gentiles would receive the forgiveness of sin, regeneration of new life in Christ, and participation in the people of God. God promised and guaranteed these things to Abraham. Now let me put this another way. The new covenant, which we're going to celebrate here after the the message, the new covenant where God promised to, to put a new heart, and a new spirit in his people to forgive their sins and write his law on their hearts, God guaranteed to Abraham that the Gentiles would be included in that new covenant made to Israel, which Jesus inaugurated upon his death. And because Jews and Gentiles united by faith and are justified through faith are participants in the new covenant, we also become co-participants In the Davidic covenant, which means that we are citizens of heaven. 
And we will reign with Christ on the earth for a thousand years and then beyond that on into eternity in the new heavens and the new earth. As heirs of the promise, we enjoy the blessing of reconciliation with God in this life and participation as the people of God in the kingdom of God and everlasting joy in the presence of God. So when the winds of trouble howl and the waves of persecution and trials crash over us, we must anchor ourselves in the conviction that no matter how difficult the tempests of life come, we will yet reign in the glorious presence of God forever. So we can joyfully endure any difficulty, no matter how long it lasts, because we are forgiven. We are reconciled to God, and God has promised us an eternal life and inheritance with Him. You can deal with the insults and the curses of men because you have the favor of God. You can endure decades of physical pain and disability because you will enjoy eternity with God in a perfect body. You can endure endless financial hardship and malnutrition and oppression and all manner of suffering because even if you did it for a hundred years, it would be a drop of time in the ocean of eternity where you will experience complete provision and satisfaction and endless blessings. These are just some of the blessings that God promised to Abraham in which he has revealed progressively over time in which we cannot even begin to imagine the fullness of the promises of God. But God has promised them. And over the last 3,000 years, he has been faithful to fulfill them. And he will continue to be faithful because he has sworn and he has made an oath. Now, if we were to end there, that would be enough. Be enough for me. God promised God swore, God made an oath. What more reasons for hope could we have or even need? Well, God's promise and his oath play the prominent role in this text, but the preacher points out three additional reasons that we can use to distinguish between God's sworn promise and his oath between his and those of man. So point number three, God is immutable. So anchor your soul on his promises. God swore, God made an oath, and God is immutable. Look again at verses 17 to 18. In this, in the same way, God desiring even more to show the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose guaranteed with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set for us. Notice that repeated word, unchangeable. We are not meant to gloss over that word. Any person can make a sworn promise. Any person can make an oath, but even the most sacred promises made with the best of intentions can be broken. But not God's. Only God can make unchangeable, immutable promises. 
Consider Isaiah 46, 8 through 11. Remember this and be, and be assured. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things long past, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things which have not been done, saying, my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Truly I have spoken, truly I will bring it to pass, I have planned it and surely I will do it. Or Isaiah Chapter 40, verse 8, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord, what? Stands forever. God's plans and his purposes and his promises are unchanged because when God makes a promise, he does it as the omniscient God. He knows all things and he knows he will do it. And when God makes a promise, he does it as the omnipotent God, meaning that he can do all things consistent with his character and will. And so he knows he has the ability to do it. And when God makes the promise, he does it as the omnipresent God. He is always present with his people. And so he knows he will be there to fulfill it. And when God makes a promise, he does it as the faithful and true God. And that is our fourth point. God cannot lie. So anchor your soul on him and his promises. Look once again at verse 18. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. Numbers 23, Scripture says, God is not a man that he he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said, will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not make it good? God cannot lie. God never, never makes a promise that he does not intend to keep. That's why we say that in his omnipotence, He can only do that which is consistent with his character and will. He cannot lie, not because there is some deficiency in God, but because he is faithful and true. That is his character. So when God swears on a promise and makes an oath, we know for certain. Indeed, we can stake our life and our eternity on it. Because he will not change his purposes and he cannot lie. What he has said, he will accomplish. This anchor of our souls is not some wishful thinking. We are not left to hope on the promises of one who has the best of intentions but is unable to guarantee the outcome. We cannot survive on some vague hope that things will somehow get better in this life. They might not. The only sure and steadfast anchor for the soul which we can hold to and which empowers joyful endurance is the certainty that God will bring us to glory 
and grant us an eternal inheritance in his presence. Finally, our final point. We can anchor our soul on God and his promises because he swore, because he made an oath, because God is immutable and does not change, because God cannot lie, and finally, because our hope is anchored in heaven where Christ is. Look at verses 19 and 20. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul. A hope both sure and steadfast and one which enters within the veil where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. In the temple and the tabernacle, they were so arranged that there was a room called the Holy of Holies. This was the most sacred piece of ground on the planet. It was so sacred that no one could enter this room except the high priest. And he could only enter this room once a year. And he could only enter this room once a year if he carried with him the blood of a bull that was sacrificed for the sins of the people. The entrance of that room was not covered by a door, but by a veil, a very thick cloth. And the preacher of Hebrews uses this picture of the Holy of Holies to speak about the throne room of God in heaven. And to say that our hope enters within the veil is to say that our hope is not moored here on earth, but that it is anchored in the presence of God where death cannot come. It is where moth and rust do not destroy where thieves do not break in and steal. And it is there because Jesus put it there. Left to ourselves, our hope would be pie in the sky if if we were to cast our imagined hopes up to the heavens. They would crash down on the earth in the ocean and take us with them. But we have not been left to ourselves Our hope is not imagined. Our hope for an eternal and blessed future was promised by God, guaranteed by Christ's death and resurrection, and carried by Him into the presence of God where He sits interceding for us. My friends, if you're sitting here listening to the sound of my voice, and you have spent your life trusting in yourself, that you can live a life to meet some standard of measure in the hope of an eternal future, your hope is empty and you are doomed for hell. Or maybe you're listening and you know that you failed. You know that in your rebellion and your wickedness, there is nothing you can do to earn yourself eternal life. You're right. Left to yourself, you are destined for hell. But the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ is that even though we are all sinners, even though we have all been born as enemies of God, He Himself has done what we cannot do. 
While we were enemies, Jesus Christ paid the penalty for sin and he gave his life so that we might be freed from the bondage of sin. And all we must do is stop hoping and trusting in ourselves, but instead place our hopes on Christ who died as our substitute. We must trust that he died and rose again and ascended into heaven where he now sits. Our hope can, cannot be in ourselves. It must be in Christ, who has gone before us into the presence of God with his own blood offered as a sacrifice for sinners. And if we anchor our souls in him, we will one day pass through the veil, not with blood in our hands, but wearing the righteousness of Christ. My friends, if your hope is in yourself, you will perish. But if your hope is in God and his promises, in Christ and his finished work on the cross, then you have a sure and steadfast anchor for your soul. And this hope will enable you to endure any trial that you can face in this life. At the moment of his greatest trial, Abraham trusted and believed that God's promises would overcome death. Will you? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, what a remarkable reality we have meditated on your character, your goodness, your love for us. May we set our hopes on Christ and trust in you so that we might joyfully endure the challenges in this life. In his name we pray, in Christ and for his sake. Amen.